Hello, my name is Clive Parnell and I am the host of the Little Breakfast Podcast. It's so good of you to join us today on whatever platform you are listening to us on and we would love to interact with you and you can do that in various different ways. You can do that through Facebook, we have our own Facebook page. You can do that on Instagram or you can do that on Twitter. You can tweet and you can like and you can favorite and you can love heart on all these different types of platforms. More importantly, we'd love to hear any comments you've got. We'd also love to hear any questions that you might have. We can drop in some of your questions in some of the episodes if they're relevant. And we'd also like to hear any ideas that you have for subject matters. We want to build a bit of a community of people around this podcast and not just be talking to ourselves as we record these, but be hearing back from you. So join us and contribute to this too. Well, welcome to the Little Breakfast. I'm very pleased to say that joining us from the other side of the Little Pond, as it were, is Kevin Van Hooser. Kevin, welcome to the Little Breakfast. Thank you for having me for breakfast. Thanks for joining us. You are somebody who is in America. Um, you're from America, but you're also familiar with this side of the pond a bit as well, aren't you? You, were, you did spend some time in Edinburgh, where I'm based. Indeed. Um, I spent some time in England during my doctoral studies, four years in Cambridge. But then I came back, had an opportunity to teach at New College, the University of Edinburgh. So for eight years, my family and I lived in Marchmont. And we have very fond memories of our time there because that's really where my two daughters grew up. Um, and mm. so whenever we think of their childhood, we think of Edinburgh, so associated mm. only with good memories. Well, that's, that's amazing. And there is a bit of a link I'm going to create here, because as you'll know, Edinburgh is a bit of a windy city, and you've moved to somewhere else, I believe, that's a bit of a windy city. Or I'm in the Chicago area, yes. And that is a bit windy? It, it is, it has seasons, of course. I, I don't know that the Windy City actually refers to a weather phenomenon, however. That's <laughs> what I thought as well. I believe it has to do, and I may be wrong about this. I should have checked it up. I didn't think you'd check me, ask me about local <laughs> knowledge, but yes. I think it might have to do with, uh, with talking okay. and, uh, you know, uh, being a, a place where newspapers and other forms of communication oh. uh, emanated from i'm not sure about this but i'm this not is, sure this is a great opportunity weather. to create some interaction on this podcast when people are listening to this they can drop us their comments as to where did the name the windy city come from i'm i'm sure you'll you'll be right you're you're probably much more oh i don't know i think i get i get fact checked quite often <laughs> it's going to be a fake news check is it that's um, right and so you are in or near Chicago in Illinois, and do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself for those listeners that are not as familiar with you? Sure. Uh, I, I'm teaching at a seminary outside Chicago. It's called Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, very happy here. I, I'm a native Californian, so the only reason I'm in this windy city, whatever it means, 
is so I can uh, train future pastors. I have two daughters, as I say, we raised them in Edinburgh. They have fond memories as well. My eldest daughter um, is a pianist, but she's very interested in folk music and there's nothing she more enjoys than on her violin, which she also plays, uh, playing Scottish folk music. Right, and can I ask, what sort of accent do they have these days? Ah, well, you see, we left when they were 12 and 10. Hmm. So I'm afraid it's degenerated <laughs> back to <laughs> back to an American accent. They had a lovely accent when we lived in Edinburgh, and even I sounded almost Canadian. <laughs> yes, yeah, that can often happen, isn't it, to North Americans or particularly Americans that come to Scotland? It mutates into a Canadian accent. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. Well, thanks so much for joining us um, here on The Little Breakfast. And it's a real pleasure of mine to get you on because I, in my postgraduate studies, uh, read your name a lot, read a lot of your material, had to put your name into a lot of quotations in in my work. And it's a real honour to be able to chat with you today. And um, so we're so pleased that you've, you've joined us and we're going to be getting into the theological... Uh, ribeye steak content of what's coming up in a minute or two but just before we do we have a bit of a tradition here on the little breakfast by asking you know the gospels about the whole of life so we just want to ask a little bit about your culinary tastes if you uh, wake up in the morning on an average day what is your average breakfast that you would eat well i have two i alternate between cereal and toast and I keep to a fairly strict schedule, uh, just so I have a balanced diet, I suppose. Uh, for, for toast, that's rather easy. Uh, use the same bread all the time. Maybe I'll change the spread, have some marmalade or jam and so on. Yeah. Um, also Nutella. Uh, so those are, my, those are my toast options. Okay. And then with cereal... I have uh, five different boxes and I'm a mad scientist and I have my own concoction <laughs> in the morning. A little bit of bran, a little bit of, you know, wheat, a little bit of something a little more sugary for the taste. Sadly, no Weetabix available here. Uh, oh. Yet another sign of the decline of American civilization. <laughs> That's interesting. Now, I think a lot of expats miss Weetabix, but don't necessarily eat a lot of it when they're in the UK. If you're listening to this and you're around um, in another place in the world, Kevin, how would you best describe Weetabix? Oh, <laughs> well, um, if I remember correctly, it's, uh, uh, it's a, it's comes in a solid form and you have to sort of chop it up in a cereal bowl and <laughs> it tastes healthy. <laughs> It's healthy. Yeah, I imagine. I imagine horses would like it as well. Yeah, it, it, it's a sort of circular shape, isn't it? Or, or not quite. Someone will correct me on the exact shape, but but it's it's oh. it's pure wheat. And if you leave it in the bowl for more than thirty seconds, you come back and it's a bit like concrete. Um, it's very hard to uh, get out of the bowl. It just solidifies quite quickly, doesn't it? Hmm. So if you were to have a dream breakfast what would your dream breakfast be if you could just have anything in the world ah uh, my my dream breakfast would probably be just something very continental uh, a croissant and yeah. a strong cup of coffee mm, yeah very very chic very french and what would be... uh, my wife is french that may be why i have oh, this well there you go 
these connections, all these connections. Mm-hmm. And and lastly, a bit of a curveball um, is what would be your nightmare breakfast? Something you really don't like. Ah, let's see. Uh, <laughs> I don't often have nightmares, so I'm going to have to imagine what it would be. <laughs> it, it would probably be, it, it might just, well, let's just say it would be um, a, a buffet where you could eat everything you wanted. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm afraid I would indulge and then pay for it. Oh, yeah. yeah, you would you would fall into the, the sin of gluttony. The nightmare, the nightmare would come afterwards. <laughs> That's a good answer. Okay, so we are specifically going to be thinking a bit about. Um, we're going to be referencing quite a bit today uh, your book, Hearers and Doers, and the subtitle is A Pastor's Guide to Making Disciples Through Scripture and Doctrine. And I particularly want us to. Um, chat about and help the listeners think through uh, I suppose the sort of interface between uh, being a disciple and and the bible which is a lot of what your book is about so that's pretty handy so first of all what I want to ask you is what is a disciple it sounds a really basic question on the one level but how would you describe a disciple what is a disciple it's a basic question but basics are important The first thing I would do is distinguish a disciple from a believer. Um, Nothing wrong with belief, of course, but a disciple is someone who believes and follows. Um, We're talking about disciples of Jesus, of course. So we, we hear Jesus. We don't simply admire him from afar. If we're a disciple, we hear his words and we obey them. Um, I think of James which James 1, verses 22 to 25, which is the passage from which I take my title, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Hmm. And Jesus says something very similar to that in Luke 6, when he compares the person who hears and does his word to someone who builds his house upon a rock rather than sand. Hmm. And the point is only when we live and act according to Jesus' words, um, are we on sound ground, you know, mm. because his words are ultimately reliable. That's, that's one way I would just talk about a disciple. It's not just a believer, not just a hearer, mm. but someone who's actively doing, that is doing the words of Jesus, so following the words mm. of Jesus and Jesus. It's interesting that you use, you make that comparison between believer and disciple, because I don't know, you may have had that experience in life where somebody might have kind of cornered you in a church and said, are you a believer? And, and, you know, there's a sort of focus on being a Christian as being a believer. But actually, so are you saying from that, you know, that that is a bit sort of deductive because actually it, it sort of doesn't really allow us to participate or doesn't focus on the participation of doing it's more about just being and i'm a believer yes uh, and i may be particularly sensitive to this um as an american where believing is fairly easy there's real there's no cost at the moment to believing in jesus maybe one day there'll be persecution for that but at the moment there isn't and i'm also reminded of dietrich bonhoeffer's idea of cheap grace 
Mm. Cheap grace, he says, is believing that we're, that we're forgiven, but not actually living as disciples. So it's cheap grace. You, you have this free pass and nothing is required of you. And as you know, his famous book is entitled The Cost of Discipleship. Mm. Uh, grace really isn't cheap. Uh, it was costly for the Lord who had to give his life uh, for our salvation, and so we could, we need to, um, we need to respond in kind. So, when we think about discipleship, just taking that idea that you've you've given us there about what a disciple is, how can reading the Bible help us grow as a disciple? What what's the link there? Well. Let me also say about a disciple, since we've talked about the words of Jesus, I think a disciple is someone who is awakened by these words of Jesus, awakened from, we'll call it idolatrous slumbers, not dogmatic slumbers, uh, awakened from, from delusions, really, and awakened to the way the world really is. Mm. And I believe the way the world really is, is what we see in Scripture, the Bible tells us the true story about God, the world, ourselves. Um, we know from Psalm 1, there are two different ways to walk. One leads to wisdom and life. The other leads to foolishness and destruction. Um, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So the disciple is someone who's actively walking the way that is true. And again, we learn to grow as disciples as we read scripture because we find more about this way that is the way that jesus is the ways of god and then the way we should be walking mm. so you just can't start walking right you have to have a direction scripture gives us that direction so in your book just taking uh, some of those ideas that you you just brought out there i was picking out uh, a few words as I've been reading your book over a number of months, I have to say, chewing slowly on it, um, I picked out a few words that you referenced regarding being a disciple. And you may just want to come back at me on some of these headers, as it were. Um, you use the word mirror, conforming to Christ, about it being mature, uh, about being in Christ. And one area that I've not really heard before, other than yourself in other writings that you have, is about being an actor. That's a really interesting description. Do you want to maybe unpack that a wee bit? Uh, I could start with actor if you'd like. Actor's good. Um, you take your pick. But, <laughs> but uh, well, actually, you mentioned mirror as well, and that goes back to the James 1 passage. Um, yeah. You know, when we look into the mirror, we shouldn't forget what we see there. And uh, James says, someone who hears God's word but doesn't do it is like a person who looks in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what he sees. I think that's a wonderful image because when we look into scripture, we see ourselves as we truly are. We see ourselves as created. We see ourselves as sinners. The Bible is very realistic about the human condition. But then, and this is the best, we also see ourselves as renewed in Christ, mm. as creatures that are being remade. And this is what 
we mustn't forget as Christians. The truth of the matter is that we are being remade in Christ's image. And Satan is the father of lies. And Satan was always whispering in our ears, you know, you're not good enough. You haven't done enough. Mm. (laughs) And so it's very important that we see then the gospel, the truth of, uh, of our salvation, is that we don't have to remake ourselves. We cannot. But the good news is that God has remade us. We have the image of Christ indwelling us through, that is, the spirit of Christ. So that's, the mirror image is extremely important, and the Bible is the mirror, as it were, that in, in which we see ourselves as we have been created, as we were fallen, and as we've been redeemed. Mm. Now back to the actor, and this has to do with hearing and doing. Um, I think the gospel is, is really a story of what God is doing in Christ to remake all things, ourselves included. And a story has action, and it has characters, and it has a plot. And I believe that the Bible tells us the story, the great story of what God is doing, and we're part of it. Mm. A disciple is to be part of that story. And so that, to me, suggests we're in a drama. It's a real drama, a historical drama centered on the Christ, uh, begun by God, uh, the Holy Spirit is empowering it, and, and our part in the drama as disciples is to be witnesses. Mm. This is why we have the Holy Spirit. We're to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Uh, we're also to live out the life of Christ in us. It's extraordinary. Mm. And so I, I love the idea that the Christian life is a little drama inside a bigger drama, which is what God has done in Christ. And everything I do, everything I do, uh, I'm doing on the stage of world history. Mm. God is observing me. The world is observing me. My family's observing me. I want to act with integrity. And I, so I need to know my holy script because the Bible tells me how I should be acting now that I am uh, someone who has been included, adopted into the family of God. Does that help as far that, as that's, that, that is that is good? And there's, there was a point that I just wanted to pick out in the book. I can't remember word for word, but the thing that struck me is that somebody listening to this might be thinking, "Okay, you know, this guy is talking about acting. Is the Christian life about acting?" I mean, that sounds potentially like a bit fake. But I think the point that you made in the book was is that everybody is part of a meta narrative a big picture a big story and is acting and it's it's again essentially i guess it's whose play that you're in isn't it and yeah and thank you, you. thanks for asking that clarifying question because i i use this uh, theatrical analogy hesitantly because if there's one problem with the church if there's one problem with christians and it's named in the new testament that problem is hypocrisy. Mm. A lot of people, when they think about Christianity or the church, they, they think about hypocrites. That is, people who say one thing and then do another. Mm. So when I use the word acting, I do not want to suggest hypocrisy, and I don't want to suggest pretending either. 
that when I use the word acting, I want to say, no, this is a real drama. I really have this role. This is the part I'm playing. It's not a pretend role. Mm. I really am a disciple. I really am a creature being remade in Christ's image. And that's the part I want to act out, who I am in Christ. Yeah, that's helpful. That that clarifies that. And, and I think if you read your book, you'll see you know the, those different nuances in that. And I think it's quite persuasive in in uh, i know in in other forms of work that you talk about the dramatic nature of scripture which we'll come to in a moment it does lead me to think about um about our reading of scripture so that if somebody who's a disciple is somebody who you know mirrors what the word says who christ is uh finds their identity in christ is this actor within this um this story that is real, um, then it, the tricky bit for us um, is actually how we read scripture. Because I I know from your work, and I and I wholeheartedly agree, is that words are just so important in terms of our understanding what they mean, and then actually them them transforming us. And it could be described that that reading scripture, as you've um, spoken about, involves three horizons that we can think about going behind the text, you know, the sort of uh, historiogrammatic um, aspect of the text. What does it mean in its context? We can think about being on the text, reading in the text, um, and, and being in front of the text. And I just wondered, a lot of Western evangelicals uh, focus, including myself, focus on sometimes the third horizon, applying the text to um, our lives. So, for instance, you know, read a passage about the prodigal son and then think about oneself in that story rather than necessarily thinking about the Middle Eastern context and then the effect that that has then and for us now. So why do you think so many Christians look to simply apply the text and maybe not look at the first two horizons? And why is it that we maybe have what you describe as a thin interpretation of Scripture rather than a thicker interpretation? Uh, I do think you have uh, named something that's actually happening. I, my wife's in a Bible study, and when I ask her, you know, how was it? This is often what she tells me, is that uh, they spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to apply the text to their lives. And again, there's a right, there's a right place for that. But to your question, I think the reason we tend to do that is we may look at the Bible as a kind of handbook for Christian living. Mm. Um, that is, we, we look through it for uh, its universally true principles. And again, there are universal truths in the Bible. There are things to apply, but I tend to look at it a little differently because instead of trying to apply the Bible, which is somehow apart from my experience to my experience, um, I, I want to get into the world of the Bible itself. Mm. As I mentioned, I think the Bible tells me the true story of the universe, uh, of God, myself, of everybody else. And I think I want to, I think fully to understand it, we have to get into its world. Um, because I think today the situation of the church is pretty much where it leaves off in the book of Acts. <laughs> you know, we, we tend to think of 
the Bible is far away and culturally distant. And of course, historically it is. But if we think of the redemptive historical context of scripture, of what God is doing in the world, we're really in the same position as the early church, right? We're after Pentecost, Mm. but before the second coming of Jesus. We're still playing that scene. So I don't need to apply the Bible to my world. I need to learn how to fit my world into the world of, of Scripture, especially, you know, Acts, the Acts of the Apostles. That's where we still are. Um, so that's, that's part of, I think, uh, the difference. It's a, you know, I don't look back at the text as somehow foreign to my world. I, I want to get into the story of the text itself. And I, I think, um, you know, even with regard to how we read the story of Jesus, um, when I read the story of Jesus, when I read the Apostle Paul, I am struck by how Paul wanted to get his story into the story of Jesus. Remember, he says, mm. I have been crucified and raised with Christ. He doesn't apply uh you know, moral truths to his life that he learned from Jesus. He identifies with the story of Jesus. In fact, isn't that what discipleship is? It's the attempt to make Jesus' story our own. Hmm. I think I think that's really interesting and challenging for, uh, for instance, a millennial, uh, for somebody that's a Gen X uh, person like myself, that what we've got going on before we get into uh, understanding the Bible, I think, is that we we have been conditioned through education and through uh, the philosophies of the age, whether it's postmodernism or identity politics. You talk about entering into the world of the text, and, and I suppose in a way the text changing us. But some people wouldn't even recognize the author, or some people wouldn't even recognize that there is a text. Um, so how do you how do you navigate that in terms of making disciples? Uh, again, great question. Uh, and I want to use another term that people may misunderstand or at least have a bad association with at the beginning, but I have a very positive view of it. And, and the word is imagination. Um, I think we're all living in a story. We all have a story that you know we're telling ourselves. And this is everyday life, right? But um, we tell our stories. And I think the Bible, as I've mentioned, tells the true story, but in our world, there are lots of storytellers. And so the big question is, whose story are we following? Whose story are we living out? A lot of people are trying to live out um, a dream story, you know, what our culture says is the good life. And so they think they have to have this many children, and they think their salary has to be this big, and their home has to be this big. And and if it is, then they, they've succeeded. You know, they're living the good life. Mm. But whose story defines the good life? Uh, again, we, we're living in a, a, an age where the technology is extremely powerful. Images are powerful. I think of films and television and, and novels and adverts. All of these things fill our imaginations with an idea of what we should be striving for, you know? Mm. And the question is, uh, whose story are we living? What 
what picture of success do we have in mind? And I think often it's driven by culture, not scripture. So uh, I think one of the things scripture does for me, it is challenged uh, what I think are the goods of my life. And it's, and you know, the wisdom of the cross turns everything upside down. Mm. And so I, I have to think very hard, you know, what am I here for? What, what, what should I put my energy into? And again, whose story of success am I trying to live out? Mm. And that links, doesn't it, back to you talking about being an actor, because it's almost as if, if people were to view the Bible without there being an author or there being meaning, it's almost like they are living in their own bubble in some kind of vacuum that they're not affected by any other narrative. And the reality is, from what you're saying, is we're all living in some sort of narrative. Yeah, the irony also is that in our modern, postmodern era, um, you know, everything seems to be about the individual, right? Have it your way. Custom-made reality, you know, have yeah. it your way. But the fact of the matter is, um, we're very much alike one another. You know, we've all been shaped by the same global yeah. culture. And so the same forces, um, you know, we aren't really that different from each other. And again, I think Christianity is strikingly refreshing and different. Um, it, being a disciple isn't a matter of, you know, having a cookie cutter mold that makes you like every other Christian. Look at the disciples in the New Testament. They're different from one another, right? <laughs> Peter and James and John, they're different. Mm. And that's, that's striking because what it means is you can be a disciple of Jesus and you can be yourself. Yeah. There's a place for difference. And the Holy Spirit, of course, gives different gifts to people. In other words, diversity isn't a bad thing. It may be that, that you'll find more true diversity in the church than you will in contemporary culture. That's so true. Even just looking at the disciples, the variety of characters within them, and you're absolutely right. I want to think a little bit about now the link between reading the Bible and being a disciple and what we call the performative act of the word, um, particularly through um, the work of the Holy Spirit. I think a lot of people um, pick up a Bible and they even turn to something like John's Gospel and they just might think it's a bit 2D. It's just a bit flat, like, okay, I'm reading this story about this guy, John the Baptist, and and there's words on a page, just like somebody's picked up, um, you know, a men's health magazine or the Times newspaper. It's words on a page. So how do these words have this performative act where they can actually transform me? I mean, what, what is going on there? How does it happen? Uh, well, we know that faith comes by hearing the word of God. How does it happen? Um, I, think, uh, I think the word of God is like a sword. It can pierce through falsehood. It can challenge this prevailing story that we believe. I think maybe the easiest example is Jesus' parables. They're very simple stories, aren't they? 
Hmm. Uh, everybody can understand them. No technical terms needed. But when Jesus first told his parables, they turned people's worlds upside down because he, he, he was trying to get them to see normal, their normal world in a very different way. And it, they, the, the uh, force of the parable the, may be lost on us now because they're so familiar to us. But to his original readers in particular, the parables had a force. I mean, they, they knocked you for a loop, <laughs> almost like a physical force. Mm. And I, I think that is part of the challenge of preaching today. The gospel is never going to be simply conventional. If the gospel is rightly proclaimed, it's always going to challenge, you know, the, the dominant pictures that our world has lodged in our heads. And if we understand that, we'll feel the challenge. But I hope we'll also feel the liberation. Mm. Because uh, Jesus' words liberate uh, from fear, from anxiety, from illusion, from the burden of having to save yourself. Mm. There is a great liberative power in the gospel and Jesus' teaching. So I think you've um, partly answered that. Um, what I want to dig a little bit more into is the role of the Holy Spirit in that. Um, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah, I'm, thank you. I'm the theologian, and you're the one that reminding me of all these important <laughs> doctrines. Uh, but uh, no, it's a very important point because I don't want to be heard as saying that uh, what we need to do as Christians is simply become better rhetoricians, better orators. Mm. Um, it, I think it is important to uh, think about the words you use in a sermon or the words you use with your neighbor whenever you're talking about important things. But at the end of the day, we can't transform lives through our rhetoric or wordcraft only. Mm. Um, our job is to witness. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict. Mm. And I believe the Spirit does that when people read Scripture I think the Spirit does that when people listen to sermons. And I think the Spirit can do that when you and I have conversations with our neighbors. Mm. Uh, if we bear true witness, the Spirit can bring those words home, per persuade them. Uh, in John's Gospel, he says, these things are written so that you may believe. Mm. But he didn't write them in such a way that belief was inevitable. There's still going to be people who don't believe John's gospel. But I think he realized that his job was to, to bear witness. The Spirit's job is to convict and to mm. persuade. Mm. And, and, and I think it kind of links in, for me, what you're saying there with the work of the Spirit and theological reading of Scripture, like the rule of faith, because I certainly know before I became a Christian, which is at the age of 18, I'd pick up a Bible and it just seemed like, you know, gobbledygook. I didn't have a clue. Like, right. I couldn't work it out. I was like, man, you know, I'm trying to unpack this and understand that. But there's something incredible, which is of God, where by him coming uh, by the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, into our lives, that we get these eyes of faith, which isn't some sort of, 
glib kind of easy believerism but there's that's to me when i was studying your work uh in the masters that i did in hermeneutics resonated with me the most like yes this is true you know the the spirit makes the word come alive to us he he resonates in our heart and makes this uh, gives us this ability to understand not outside of logic but just you know fusing that all together and scripture reading us in that sense if that makes sense oh yes indeed and so the spirit has the ability to to open our eyes uh and so you can imagine no no particular picture is going to make an impact if someone is blind and can't see it and i think there's somehow there's an equivalent with reading scripture there's a way of reading the words on the page as you were saying earlier and not feel their impact it's almost as though you're not hearing what's actually being said and so mm. the spirit is the one who knows the things of god and who could open our eyes and make the blind see and make the deaf hear when they're reading scripture mm, absolutely so regarding the Bible and the church, I just want to, in this last section, uh, pull out some things in your book uh, regarding uh, Scripture, the um, being a disciple, and the church specifically. Uh, I serve as a pastor, a local pastor in a church um, just on the outskirts of Edinburgh um, called Kirkliston. And in reading your um, book, it's been incredibly helpful to think through what does this stuff really look like on the ground? You know, what does it look like to be a pastor, to think about things theologically in terms of being a disciple? And so I've just got a couple of questions for you uh, in that regard. So regarding the Bible and the church, you say in the book, uh, Hearers and Doers, everything the church does as a body communicates something. Can you just unpack that a bit for us? Yes. Uh, well, do you have the expression in in britain body language yeah, that, yeah, yeah okay yeah. so the idea about body language is that we say things not simply with words but by the way we stand or or sit our posture you know yeah and i was struck that one of the most important new testament images for the church is the body of christ um so if the church is a body and there is such a thing as body language, it makes me think that everything the church does as church mm. communicates something. That is, we're, we're always, as a company of believers, we're always bearing witness to something. And that's why this uh, charge of hypocrisy is so distressing. Mm. Uh, we want to be consistent. We want to be a people of integrity. We, we really are a set-apart people. That's what it means to be holy. We're, we're set apart as a holy nation to bear witness to another kind of kingdom. And everything we do as a body of Christ communicates something of that kingdom. And so, again, to go back to this dramatic analogy, I like to think of the life of a local church mm. as a lived parable. When the church is doing life in Christ, it is a parable of the kingdom. And my hope is that through our body language, we will be a parable that will, you know, not only attract people's attention, but communicate something about the kingdom of God. 
That's very really interesting because when you were talking about that, I was thinking how you know when you think of like a teen. I don't want to. I don't want to gloss every teenage boy in the world, but I've been a teenage boy once. You know, there's a certain me too <laughs> stance of a teenager slumping. You know, like oh yes, oh you know, like to slump it, and you kind of say, well, you know. Sometimes I think the church in the West were just like maybe we're a bit like that teenage boy slumping, you know. And if we get hold of what it is to be a disciple and how powerful the word the word is and how this is good news to declare, I think maybe our body language should transform from being a stroppy teenage boy <laughs> to something a bit more upright, you know. Um, it's a that's a great challenge to give to a local church, right? Don't be a slouchy teenager. <laughs> Stand up for Jesus. <laughs> yeah. well, it, it, it just came to me when you when you you were describing that that just body language is it, and and the challenging thing about that is is of course we can we can communicate a lot of stuff that is just stuff and fluff. You know, is not it's not the core of 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 um, orthodox christianity that, that that points people to jesus it can just be stuff we do you know oh i actually have to mention here something do you have you heard of the epistle of diagnetus i haven't no but it's an from the ancient church and the point is it's a real letter someone's talking about local churches and it's a i i'll have to give you the reference and i won't be able to quote it in full but the point is he's struck by the way of life of this people you know he's he says uh, they care about their families. Um, they 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 actually share what they have with other people. And he's giving these he's giving describing the Christian community. And, and the, you, the sense you get in reading it is he's flabbergasted. You know, he's never seen anything like this. He says, in one respect they're like us, but in another respect they're totally unlike us. Um, and that was an ancient letter. And the point is. Mm he noticed the difference and the different way of living in the church was, was their apologetic. Mm. That is, it was their defense of the truth. And it, it was also a means of evangelism. The, the life of the church, uh, this is now Leslie Newbigin. Leslie Newbigin said the life of a local congregation is a hermeneutic of the gospel. Mm. Yeah. That's it's very powerful. Very, yeah. Very powerful. So you talk about the church being, fit for purpose or people being fit for purpose and in order to do that um it really needs to be trained and equipped what is the role of the pastor i know this is has to be quite a summary because you've written a whole book but what is the role of the pastor in this training and equipping of disciples uh yeah let me just let, let me set it up a little bit so the book uh, explores the irony of our times. That is, our society is obsessed with wellness and diet and physical fitness, but the yeah. church, I fear, is neglecting its spiritual fitness. Even though it's the body of Christ, it's unfit. Yeah, flabby. And yeah. so uh, <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the backup. And so if, if you accept that picture, if there's anything in that picture, then I suggest in the book that the pastor is like a fitness trainer, only the attention is really on the spirit or the soul, or you, I suppose you could say it's on the health of the body of Christ. Mm. And so what strikes me about fitness, and now we're back to hearers and doers where we started, what strikes me about fitness and diet is that you can't lose weight or become fit 
simply by hearing about a diet program, <laughs> yeah. right? You, you cannot become fit simply by reading books about good health. You have to do something. You have to change the way you live. And it's the same way in the church. I think pastors have to help people, not just to hear the right things, but to adopt the kind of lifestyle that will make us spiritually fit, which in this case means make us more like Jesus. Mm. And you describe, you give a couple of images towards that, which I found really helpful, but also challenging as somebody who is a pastor, um, one of which you described a pastor being a bit like an eye surgeon. Do you want to describe that a bit? Uh, Sure. We talked about the importance of imagination and uh, you know, the, what we see with our mind's eye, as it were. And I think a lot of people uh, are, are not seeing 2020. You know, they're not seeing clearly these days. And I think the, the, uh, the pastor, insofar as the pastor cares about the health of the church, has to help people to put things into the right perspective, has to help them get their vision right, has to fix their eyes on... Some, a point of orientation that will help us go in the right way. So I think to some extent, a pastor should help, yes, understand, help the congregation understand the Bible, but also bring the current situation into biblical focus as well. Mm. So that's what I mean by eye correction. And there's, some, there's a lot of vision work that needs to be done because, as we already said, culture is so adept and powerful at shaping the way we see things. And the pastor has, what, a 40-minute sermon? 30-minute sermon? I don't know how long yours are. But it that's not a lot of time. <laughs> okay. That's not a lot of time yeah. to compete yeah. with six days of images yeah. that we get in our society. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but, but on the other hand, there are so many wonderful visions in Scripture, and the Bible is our corrective lens it can fix all the wrong visions we have well it's interesting you say that's not a lot of time to correct that lens you're absolutely right but then i would argue within that and 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 i think you recognize this within your book i mean one of the problems i guess with using an analogy like that for myself is that um i wouldn't want to on the one hand set myself up as a sort of expert that's set apart who doesn't have any vision impairment myself but equally there needs to be a role of church members in training and equipping which isn't just about having things done to them does it i mean there there needs to be self-care within that as well to use that metaphor does there not Oh, I do agree. And uh, yeah, I don't want to suggest that the pastor is the expert that has no problems, but the pastor is a set-apart minister of the gospel. So you can, there are ways of saying, you know, you're working on this yourself or my vision isn't perfect, Mm. but it's part of the ministry of the gospel, I think, to do that. But yes, it's not enough simply to be hearers. The congregation has to be involved in the ministry. So, yeah, there's a response to that. And there's obviously the reading of scripture and the applying of that doing in the workplace and the family and what have you, which is where the the rubber hits the road, as it were, isn't it? Uh, Yes. And one other thing to suggest to the congregation, the pastor may be the one who interprets passages from the pulpit 
but the congregation interprets the whole of scripture in its daily life, Mm -hmm. right? I think the way a congregation lives, the way we do Christianity, that is our most significant biblical interpretation. And so what you need to tell the congregation is you are all biblical interpreters. You're all interpreting what it means to be a disciple. Um, and all communicating something by body language as well. Exactly. So, yeah. but, but, but as Protestants, uh, uh, Protestants believe in the priesthood of all believers. And yeah. I don't think that means every individual has just as much right to interpret the Bible his or her way as anybody else. I don't think mm. that's what it means, although mm. sometimes it's been taken to mean that. Mm. I think the priesthood of believers means that we come to the best interpretation when we read scripture together, when mm. we interpret together, share our insights, and also when we accept correction from mm. others. Mm. And uh, this, is, this is what I think um, we need to communicate about reading scripture, is that it's a form of interpretation, and all of us are in, have the privilege and the responsibility of doing this together. Yeah, that that's a really good way of putting it because I think that there is a sense in which you're absolutely right that a pastor is an eye specialist in the sense that being set apart, if you use that analogy, you would want to go to a hospital and have that person that's trained and equipped to do that to carry out um, care of your vision. Um, but at the same time, there needs to be that that willingness to then go go thereafter and uh, make sure you don't essentially trash your eyes, you know. But actually, you you go and and live that out within community. And I think what one thing we haven't touched on, which you just touched on there, was that sense of I guess it's that balance between there's a training and equipping the pastor does in the church through the word. But then there's that, that as you, you were talking about that, that sort of understanding of reading the scripture as community. And I think that I wonder whether we, you know, there's a bit of a swingometer there, Kevin, that we've, you know, within the last 20, 30 years, people have been encouraged to have personal devotions and what have you. And it's all been about the individual applying it to one's life and have we lost some of that sense of reading in community, reading theologically? I think so. Uh, I, I do think we have. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book. The other thing to say about discipleship, then, is it isn't simply an individual, personal endeavor. Uh, uh, the plan that God has for our world, the reason he sent Christ, it, it goes back to the Old Testament idea that The chosen people of Israel were chosen to be God's treasured possession. And the phrase that he uses in Exodus is also holy nation. And Mm. the reason that's important is there's no such thing as an individual Christian. I mean, yes, there are persons, but but Christianity is a corporate thing. What What God is trying to do is to form a people, not just individuals. I think that's the point. Yeah, that that is uh, really uh, helpful actually in terms of being reminded of that. It's uh, and and I think I think we've just absorbed a lot of the age when we think the opposite of that. You know, when we just think yes. about, um, I guess, the Western mindset particularly. So, just lastly, if there's one main thing that you'd want to say from the book, what would it be? One one sort of key message that you're trying to get across 
from this, well, this recent book? Um, I think we need to relearn how to read scripture as a church and remember that our, interpret our lives are our interpretations. But as a theologian, I also want to leave you with the idea that doctrine isn't just a dry and dusty thing for scholars, but it's, it's the stuff of life and the engine of discipleship because doctrine tells us what God is doing in Christ. Mm. And that should be exciting. And, and that, that, that gives us our marching orders as well, because as I've mentioned at the beginning, we're part of that. Mm. So doctrine isn't there just to have arguments about and decide who's in and who's out. The real purpose of doctrine is to help grow disciples and to remind us what it is to be Christ-like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that, um, dare I say it, in some church circles or with some Christians, it's almost like doctrine has become a bit of a dirty word, if you know what I mean by that. Oh, I know exactly what you mean. I'm a theologian. I get this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and what do people infer by that? Well... I think, I think um, you know, and again, I should say right away, there's truth in that caricature. This is why we have to work extra hard, just as there's truth in the, you know, charges that Christians are hypocrites. There's, there is a possible truth there, but the real mm. truth is, is, is not that. So I just have to work extra hard to communicate why theology is um, on the side of life and not <laughs> deadly, dull death. Mm. Is, is there something in that, just, just lastly as we finish, which is there something about a parallel with that in terms of what you spoke about, about being an actor? Because there's a sense in which, is there not, that everyone is going to be believing in some kind of doctrine. Right. The question is, what kind of doctrine or theology we believe in? Exactly, exactly. So doctrine simply means teaching. And if we have accepted teaching, and all of us have, then to some extent, all of us have been indoctrinated in some system of doctrine or another. I'm not even talking about theology now, right? You mm. can have economic doctrines, political doctrines. We've all been indoctrinated. So one of my jobs as a theologian is to cast down idols, to mm. call them out, and to, to name false doctrine. And... Uh, Again, I'm, I don't have any personal authority in this. I'm just bearing witness to the true doctrine, sound doctrine, as Paul calls it in uh, the pastoral epistles, which is a statement of what is the case in Jesus Christ. That's what doctrine is. Mm. It tells us what God is doing in Christ to renew all things. And when we get that right, we understand who God is, we understand who we are, and we understand what salvation is. That sounds like a good place to end. <laughs> so thank you so much for your uh, time today. Your book has been personally very helpful, and I would highly recommend it to the listeners. Uh, is there any other places where people can find out about your work or your other books? Oh, well, I have a website. <laughs> well, that's good. Can you remember uh, what the website is? Yes, because it's my name. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's handy. It's uh, kevinjvanhooser.com. Oh, that's simple, yeah. Uh, it is. And there's some other links to things I've written, a few videos and so on. But um, thanks for asking. 
Okay, so we'll put some links to that on the podcast. Um, and again, if people have got any comments or questions, then they can do that and interact with us here on Facebook, on the Little Breakfast page on Facebook, on Instagram, and on Twitter. And you can find uh, Kevin on Twitter as well. I believe you're on Twitter. So any direct uh, questions on he may or may not have time to answer, but that will be uh, on um, the links will be available for you on the little breakfast podcast. Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Um, and it's been really stimulating conversation. Again, thank you for the invitation and thanks for your hospitality. Yeah, appreciate you uh, taking the time. Thanks again. <laughs>